to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As we've been making our way, last week Paul expressed how his message of the new covenant is greater than the old covenant, and how his ministry was more glorious than that of Moses. In other words, the gospel is greater than the law. The law pointed to the gospel. Peter, or Paul, in his ministry of the of the, new, of the new covenant was greater than that of Moses in the fact that it was able to, uh, the Spirit's work was greater than the work of the Old Testament. In keeping with the theme of preparation, Joe Thorne in his book Note to Self writes that in exposing our own corruption, the law of God leaves us guilty and points to our need for redemption. That was the purpose of the Mosaic Law. We are lawbreakers in need forgiveness, cleansing, and restoration. In this sense, the law serves as a guide in leading us to the gospel. That was the New Covenant ministry. It fits us for it, prepares us for it. The law, while being holy and righteous and good, is itself not good news. It is actually the bad news that makes the good news of the gospel so relevant. In this way, the law prepares us for the gospel by showing us for our need for it. That's what we saw last week, is our need for the gospel. The law could not do it. We needed the gospel, the co- or the ministry of the spirit of the new covenant that comes and gives us a new heart. You and I are recipients and ministers of the new covenant, we found out last week. And as we spend this holiday season celebrating Christ's birth, you and I also celebrate our birth. That's the good news of Christmas. And that's where I want to challenge you this morning as we continue to prepare our hearts. Now, as we come here to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is continuing through this theme of defending himself of why he was so bold and confident in, in chastising them or bringing them to task, disciplining them in that last letter that he wrote. But I have a question that we have to ask, and this is what Paul is going to answer today. What is it that kept Paul going? What was it that kept him faithful? Even during a crisis of personal conflict, remember his heart was, was very, very um, uh, struggling because Titus had not come back. He did it, not at this time, he's referring back. I don't even know if if the people, if you received my letter with the right way. Paul, though, did not despair in ministering to those he loved. Even when they were cruel, even when they had betrayed him and rebelled against him. For you and I, we might have given up long ago if people had treated us as badly as they treated Paul, their father in Christ. But yet Paul did not give up. 
And that's what I want to expose ourselves this morning as we read 2 Corinthians 4 and the first six verses, is how did Paul do it? What kept him going? And here's the main point. If you're someone who likes to take notes, you can do it on the back of your bulletin or something else. If you want to know what I'm trying to share with you this morning, here's what it is, and then we'll unpack it. The main point that we're going to see this morning is that Paul does not lose heart. He does not lose heart even in the midst of sufferings and conflicts. For Paul knows that as a minister of the new covenant, his success is guaranteed. No matter what happens, no matter who hates him or who rebels against him, doesn't matter what his sufferings or trials is, Paul knows that as a minister of the new covenant, that God is provident and is faithful and has promised success. And Father, I pray now, as we begin this message, that you would just open up our hearts to your spirit. Let us read your word and let us see clearly what it is that you've prepared for us this morning. Challenge our hearts. and Lord, may we glorify you in all that we do. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Paul does not lose heart, even in the midst of sufferings and conflicts, for he knows that as a minister of the new covenant, his success is guaranteed. Oh, I'd love to have that type of uh, guarantee. We don't always have that in life. Very uh, rarely do we have it. But in the, as a minister and as a recipient of the new covenant, we have it. And I want to share with you three things as we go through there. The first thing we're going to see in the first two verses. We're going to see Paul's confidence is not in himself, but Paul's confidence is the, in the message of the gospel. Paul's confidence is in the message of the gospel. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You and I as recipients and ministers of the new covenant, we we realize that we receive it by the mercy of God. It is not something we get as a birthright. It's not something that we can do. It's not by any merit. It's not by anything, but it's by the grace of God that you and I are recipients and then called as ministers of the new covenant. It's not of our own working or merit. But there's a problem here as we see as we go on. As Paul says, I'm not going to lose heart because by the mercy of God, I have this ministry. But Paul says, there's a problem, though, that's going on for many people. And here's what he's sharing is that many times, I'm going to kind of come off the scripture here a little bit, but what we see many times is that people use the ministry of the spirit of the new covenant in the wrong way. They're seeker-driven, relevant churches. They employ a multitude of gimmicks to draw people in and spawn a big crowd. We've seen horses in church. We've seen uh, seeker-driven pastors ride onto pulpits on a motorcycle. I remember one that time. I don't know if you ever heard that. There was one pastor. He rode his motorcycle on a big stage, and as he got out, he just totally dropped it and broke his arm during the service. I feel bad for him. I don't know if he continued the service, but uh, it didn't go over as well as he wanted to. We've seen granny raps and mosh pits, and the list goes on and on. 
one Southern California pastor here in this area actually promised his congregation that if you can double our attendance, I'll get a tattoo. Well, he got his tattoo, and many others went and got it. But we seem to do so many different things to share the gospel or to multiply our attendance or our converts and people under this. However, Paul is saying here, since we receive it by the mercy of God, quit working under your own power. Quit working under your own geniuses, so to speak. The message in the ministry needs to be handled correctly. And there's three practices that we see. Paul says, I avoid these three things, and they're very simple. The first one, he says, is we avoid disgraceful or underhanded methods. And many times you'll see that in presenting the gospel. I think many times you can turn on the TV and you'll see channels and preachers and pastors time and time again using disgraceful and underhanded uh, methods. There's no gospel. It's all manipulation. Paul says that's not the type of way in which you as a minister of the new covenant is ought to present himself. So also through cunning or craftiness, deceit or trickery. Don't use the bait and switch. Don't try to tell them one thing and then once they get in, then switch it. And many times churches will do those types of things. I remember people sometimes ask, well, why don't we do a lot of big church type things, you know, where we do something big on Sunday? The problem is, is what you win them with is how you keep them, right? So if we win them with me setting up here saying, hey, if you double our attendance next week, I'll swallow a goldfish. Anyone been in a church where they did that kind of stuff? I have. You know, bus ministries, all those types of things. If we get so many kids, I'll swallow a goldfish. Oh, that ain't happening. That ain't happening, I'll tell you that. But the thing is, I don't want to have to swallow a goldfish for every week from then on. I don't even want to take tackle an animal cracker. But here's what people happen is people do so many different things to draw and attract a crowd. And Paul says, you need to avoid that. I don't know exactly what methods he was talking of those cases, but he says it should not be so. And then the third one, I think, is one that's probably more prevalent than we like to give it credit for. And that's where he says, tampering the message. Where he says in that verse, he says, we're not tamper with God's word. And let me say this very quickly. Woe to the pastor and the church that does not handle God's word correctly. We should not compromise the gospel. We're not to compromise the message. And in so many churches, that's what you see. To get an audience, to keep people coming in. We don't teach, teach about what it is, about, uh, the, about man and about God and what it needs. We, we, we soften the approach. But let me tell you, Jesus never softened his message, did he? Jesus came to the point and says, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood to be part of me. He lost many disciples that day for those types of words. The solution, Paul says, is you need to avoid these types of things. It's not proper. But Paul's practice, he says, is to present the gospel openly and honestly so that all could see what the gospel had to say. In other words, Paul lives out what he teaches Timothy when he encouraged Timothy to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling or rightly dividing the word of truth. God has given his church something uh, special, and it's a special revelation. 
And you and I need to be careful of how we handle it. Many times we've taken Scripture and we use it for our own vices. We look for ways to justify truly what we want and what we desire. You see that many times where people will take God's Word and they'll use it and take it out of context and turn it all around and twist it around to justify their behaviors, their lifestyles, and the way they think. Very similar to the way Satan twisted and put a doubt in God's Word there in the garden so long ago. This practice of Paul, though, of being open and sharing the gospel truthfully and allowing all to see it, whether he was in a church, house church, or whether he was in the synagogue, or whether he was in an open forum, he was who he was, and he shared the gospel faithfully. And this practice of Paul had led many to many tribulations. It led to many trials. It led to many sufferings. Yet through it all, Paul understood that it also lead to change lives. And I wonder how many times do we realize that, that the good news of the gospel leads to transformed lives. And nothing else can accomplish that. I'd like for you to take a moment and turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because I want to explore a little bit of Paul's method of who Paul is. And this is a letter to the church of Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he shares a little bit more about his heart and his method of sharing the gospel. And I know as I read it, my heart is stirred as this is how we all, to, all ought to present the gospel, how we ought to live it out. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Look at verse 5. For we never come with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. How are we to present ourselves as ministers of the new covenant? In the same way. Paul wants them to take a full measure of his ministry. Don't judge me what these other men are saying. Don't judge me because I, we had a falling out, but take a full measure of my ministry. As when he pointed out that he and his fellow ministers were not like so many peddlers of God's word. But he says we were men of sincerity, commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak Christ. I'm not a peddler. I don't do it for personal gain. I don't do it for self-promotion. I do it for the cause of Christ. Rather, Paul says in Thessalonians that we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you become so very dear to us. If there's any of you that are considering the ministry, and I pray that that may be the case, 
It may be ministry as a layperson. It may be as a full-time, part-time, whatever it may be. It may be as a missionary. Grab this. We're to serve as serving children. We're to give of ourselves. And not only those of us that are in the, the professional part of sharing the gospel, not even those who might even be in leadership doing it as, as lay uh, elders and teachers and so on and so forth, but even you yourself, that's what we do when we come together. It's what we do in our workplace when we're sharing the gospel. It's what we do in our neighborhoods and in our families. We recognize that we're going to give all of ourselves, that how we live out and how we share our message, God is the one who is our witness. And so we always must make sure that as ministers of the new covenant, we represent Christ, knowing that our confidence is not in myself or in my methods or the ways in which we try to present the gospel, but in the message itself. And let us not forget, no matter how many times we do things in here in church, and from time to time we do different things to present the gospel, the important thing is not our presentation. It's not our methodology. It's not in the man, but it's in the message. That's where the power of God resides. Amen. Thank you. We need to understand that, that our confidence is in the message. Paul says that's where it's at. I'm just a minister by the mercy of God. The second thing as we go on in verses 3 and 4 is that Paul also understands, and this is a hard doctrine, Paul also understands that not all will accept the gospel. And that's something that's very sobering to understand. He says, for even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In Colossians, Paul had wrote to that church that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. However, the mind blinded by Satan cannot think straight, and it rebels against God's truth. It cannot see Jesus for who he is. And as Paul wrote in last week's passage, he wrote that the Jews' minds were hardened. He says, for even to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains. Being blinded means that we're not able to recognize Jesus as Messiah and the truth of our condition and our need for a Savior. And even today, there will be many who will come into churches. There will be many that we share the gospel, and they cannot grasp this truth. The spiritually blind are unable to see the glory of Christ, who is the very image of God. The Bible goes on to tell us that the minds of the spiritually blind are alienated and hostile. They are blinded into following the prince of the power of the air, living in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You might recall earlier in this chapter that Paul, or earlier in the book, excuse me, that Paul had wrote that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing and that the aroma of Christ to God among those who are perishing is a fragrance, but it's a fragrance from death to death. 
In other words, there will be many who will hear the life-changing message of the gospel, yet they will not be able to grasp the truth. And you and I need to understand that recognizing this hard truth helps not only Paul, but it will help us as we try to put the success or lack of success into the right perspective. As they were judging Paul, Paul says, Listen, my sufferings and my tribulations, they are of God. They're sovereignly ordained. And my success does not rest on me, but it rests or rests on the providential God. You need to recognize that there is a God of this world. It doesn't say God of this age, but the God of this world, the prince and the power of this world. Satan himself, God has given him the power to blind many eyes. You and I, as hard as this doctrine is, we need to understand that there will be many times as we share the message, there will be many who will not only respond, but they will respond vehemently against it. You and I probably know people like that. We may be related to people like that. We may have loved ones or friends or family. That any time you try to bring up the gospel or the message of Christ, they just don't want to hear it. The sad story, I remember my dad, many of you know, my mom uh, got saved after having us children. My father wasn't saved, didn't come Christ, but he was, he was okay with her sending us to Christian school and going to church and those types of things. And as we got older, I would do, we would do all sorts of things. At first, my dad would come every once in a while. He would come to the Christian school events up until about the 7th uh, or 8th ninth grade, he stopped coming. I was in a play called Once to Die. And I played this young man that, uh, who's, who was in a plane. That the whole thing was in a plane. And it was all these different characters interacting. Some were Christians, some weren't. Obviously, the message of Christ was presenting in this. But I played a character whose mother was saved and the father wasn't. And we died in the plane crash. And I remember my dad walking out the back. And he was so angry because he said, they gave you that part because of me. And from then, I remember he never really came to any more of our school events other than a graduation. Didn't stop coming to church. Told the deacon, stop coming over. Take me off your prayer list. I don't want to hear what you have to say. And I remember as a young person, we would do all sorts of things to kind of talk about it. And I remember as an I got adult, and why is it? Let me ask you this. Why is it? Do you find this? Maybe it's just me. But do you find sometimes the hardest person or people to speak to or share the gospel is relatives, is loved ones? I don't know why that is, but I guess it just is. And I remember getting a little bit older. I, I cannot recall if I was married or not. I, I think I was, but I'm not quite sure. But I remember my dad and I riding in a car together. And I remember because that just didn't happen very often. We were going somewhere doing something. He was driving, and I finally said, you know, I need to bring it up again. And so I tried to bring up, you know, the talk. Let's talk about Christ. Let's talk about God. And it wasn't much longer, you know, it didn't take far into the conversation before I could tell that his temperature was rising, you know. His temperature, you know, his temper was going. And, and it got just a little heated, and then I realized, you know what, it's time to disengage. And so I did. And so married children, he started to come back to church when our kids were then in, in Christian schools and plays and things like that. He came to see them and, and things of like that. 
my brother went into ministry, and many of you, some of you know my brother's ministry, uh, story of how he almost died, and, and, and now has a large ministry to those, those that are addicts. And I remember moving out here in 2001, 2002, I get a, 2001, I get a call from my dad, and he says, hey, Rob, guess what? I said, what? He goes, I got saved tonight. And I'm just like this, what? Yeah. Oh, I got saved. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, well, I went to Steve's ordination. Steve's my brother. He got ordained one night. And he goes, and Pastor Alley, who was his favorite pastor who had left the church, came back and was speaking for my brother's ordination. And he says, he took me to the back room. We got saved. Now, and many of you know this story. I've told you before. But short of it, after 30 years, my father came to know Christ. Now, for me, that's a wonderful story. But however, obviously, a little bit after that, we lost him to Alzheimer's. But I always realize that it's tough to speak to those that you love. And many times, they will not want to hear what you have to say. But in the end, we trust God. Now, for me, the end was very joyful. When he passed away, we knew that he was in heaven. Unfortunately, not all of us will have that type of good news. Sometimes we're left to wonder. Sometimes we, we realize that they had not accepted Christ. But the point is, is we should never let that stop us. There will be times when people will hear the gospel and they will reject it. And unfortunately what happens is many times is not only will they reject the message but many times they'll reject you with it. Have you, have you experienced that? Don't let that stop you, prevent you from sharing it. For as a minister and a recipient of the new covenant, God has called you to share. For you never know what God has planned. And our success or lack of success is not based on us, but based on what God has done. So put things in perspective. Paulus understands that not all will accept the gospel. Now I want to say a side word here, because many of you, as you read, it says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And you might think, well, wait a second, I have a question about that. You yourself might say, hey, I read God's word, I hear Pastor preach, I hear someone teach a Sunday school, and it's so hard for me. Sometimes I don't understand what I read and hear. I mean, some of you that say, that's me. And you might be frightened or worried and concerned and say, wait a second, am I one of those ones that are blind? Am I not saved? Let me say that's not necessarily so. What we're speaking here is that the God of this world blinds us the fact that Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah. He is the very image of God. And through him we can have life. There will be many of us who submit to the Lordship of Christ that when we do read the Bible, it becomes difficult. And it could be because of your reading level, it may be your comprehension level, or just because a part of training and discernment. So please don't take this verse or let this verse be used to say, well, I must not be saved because I don't understand. That's not what it's saying. But let me encourage you with this, is continue to read God's word. 
Pray for wisdom. Pray for discernment. Uh, connect yourself with someone, a spiritually mature Christian, who does understand it. Get involved with them. Help them. They can help you learn how to read and how to understand God's Word. Ask questions. For God says that He will give us the answer, and He will reveal Himself to us so that we may be able to understand and apply Scripture. And I would also then take the same thing for those of you who do understand and can read God's Word, and God has given you that gift, share it. Help others to understand it. So Paul's confidence is in the message of the Gospel. He understands that not all will accept his message and will accept the gospel. There is a natural spiritual blindness that prevents them from seeing it. But in the same way, it's not bound to me to try to take those scales, so to speak, off their eyes. And that's what we do with so many trickery and cunnery and and all types of things. We ourselves try to convince and reason with people to help uh, take away their spiritual blindness. But that's not the case. For you and I cannot make a blind man see any more than we can make a spiritually blind man see. It still comes from the Spirit of God. And that comes to our third point in the last two verses, where Paul's confidence is based on God's provision. Paul's confidence is based on God's provision. Look at verses 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, or for God who said, excuse me, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is not concerned about self-promotion. He's not concerned about getting praise or even making headlines. He's not looking for attaboys. He's not looking for a pat on the shoulder. He understands that he is just a servant for Jesus serving others. His ministry is to promote Jesus. What a great ministry. If I'm going to promote anything, the thing that you want to promote, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about who Jesus is. Some of us sometimes as we go through life, we're promoting ourselves. But Paul says, man, I'm just going to promote Jesus. Because, man, Jesus is the real thing. Again, you might recall that Paul wrote earlier, saying that we as Christians are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. And we're a fragrance from life to life. Jesus himself proclaimed in the Gospel of John, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we as recipients and ministers of the New Covenant, our goal is not to promote ourselves, it's not to promote our church, it's not to promote any type of kingdom or thing that we're doing, but we're to promote Jesus Christ. For Jesus is the light of the world, and it says that he is shown in our lights, or shown in our hearts, excuse us, so that we may give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So how are those that are blinded to the things of God? How do they see? Through you and I. When we present to them the gospel, the message. They need nothing else but Christ. Not our methods, not our, our tricks, not anything else, 
but just the glory of God as he shines and he reveals to those who Jesus is. In this passage, we're going to see a doctrine. It's called the gospel call in Jeff. This is kind of interesting. Jeff and I were just speaking on this on Wednesday. And the gospel call is an act of God that guarantees a response. In other words, there's a general call and there's an effective call. Take your Bibles real quickly. Famous portion of Scripture. Romans 8, chapter... Uh, Romans chapter 8, excuse me. Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8, we're going to go to verse 28. And here we see a revelation of God of what he's doing. We get to see in the mind what his purpose, what his plan is. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we see the doctrine of the gospel call in which God guarantees a response. Look at Romans 8, verse 28. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29. And here we see the plan of God. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So in other words, we see God's plan. God's plan is to take some and make them into the image of his son. That's what we call being a new creature. That's what we're talking about, being born again. That's the new birth. That's the new covenant. I will take their hearts, and I will give them new hearts, and I will be their people and be their God. He says, I'm going to conform into the image of the son in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. In verse 30, we see how that works itself out when he says, And those who predestined to be called the sons of God, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So as just as we know that there will be many who will not accept the gospel, we also realize that the gospel will be successful and that it will call out those that God has said will be, be conformed to his image. In other words, God says, my will will be done. We can expect a response. We should expect a response. We ought to know that it rests not in ourselves, but it rests in the providence of God. And we say, what in the world is a gospel call? Well, let's say what it's not. First, there's a general call. And that's an external, that's by human speech or human reading. It's when you and I read God's word or we hear the preaching of God's word. Similar to what Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the general call. The call that says, all of you must repent and believe in Jesus Christ. He's called us to do so. We are all in rebellion against him. The wrath of God abides on all and he calls all to repentance. That's the general call. But just as I make a general call does not make that call effective. It's very similar. We may ask many of you, hey, we want to encourage you to come to the Christmas banquet. It's next week. It's great. The food is great. And you may say, oh, that sounds nice. You may even put it on your calendar, but that does not get you into the seat next week, does it? No, we may have to do something. So maybe we do some skits. Maybe we do some different things to try to stir your interest in it. But again, that doesn't make sure that you're there. We put Dawn in the back with a, with a clipboard, and there's nothing worse than having Dawn with a clipboard in the back, because she's going to seek you out. 
You can avoid her eyes and walk around her path, but I guarantee you she will find you. And the same way, she's going to say the same thing. Do you want to come to the banquet, or are you going to come to the banquet? Or if she's smart, she's going to say, now how many of you should I put down for the banquet? What we find is one is a general call, one is a little bit more effective, right? Because she'll probably get more than if we just leave it to a general call, saying, hey, we're going to meet, let's meet. And it's the same thing as we see from Scripture. There will be many that will hear me say, come to Christ. But until they hear from Christ himself, that call is not always effective, or will be. For the effective call is that by the Holy Spirit. We see that in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. We see a little woman named Lydia. And in it it says, there was one who heard Paul. She was a woman named Lydia. She was from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple gold. And she was a worshiper of God. She was a worshiper of the Jewish God. But here's the key point if you're writing it down. Chapter 16 of Acts, verse 14. And it says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. In other words, God reached down and opened her heart. You see, there was for years, there were many people who shared with my dad, hey, Dell, you need to accept Christ. And for years he put it off or said he was or did all these things to the point he just said, quit bugging with me with it. To the point that one day I finally stepped out but was shut down and I just, that was it. My call, their call, was ineffective. But one day, Refugio, 30 years later, God reaches down into my dad's heart, takes that heart of stone out, and puts it on a new heart, and put his name there, and says, you are one of mine. And my dad could not resist that type of call. For that call, all of a sudden, my, my dad's eyes were no longer blinded, the scales were off, and like Saul, he saw Jesus, and he recognized who Jesus was. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the Messiah, the anointed one. That's the call of God. And Paul recognized that's the power of the ministry of the new covenant. For it's not based on him, it's not based on his intelligence. It's not based on his creativity. It's not based on a committee. But it was based on the work of the Holy Spirit replacing hearts. Again, Paul had written that the word of Christ, of the cross, is the power of God to us who are being saved. Paul recognized that you and I also, that outside of God, we cannot respond. Hence, he could say, by the mercy of God. I pray today that you hear his voice. I pray that it would find deep in your heart and that he would pull you out of that mire and that you realize who Jesus was. Paul Washer, he's a great evangelist. He writes that man's case is hopeless apart from a genuine work of the gospel, faithfully preached and accompanied by the regenerating power of the Spirit. That's the ministry of the new covenant. That's what you and I have. And Paul says, my confidence is in the message of God. I recognize that not all will accept it, but I also know that it will be effective for those that God has planned to bring to him. 
In closing, I think of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And Peter writing says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Speaking of Scripture, he says, To which you will all do well to pay attention as, a lamp, or as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawn and the morning star arises in your heart. Earlier, Matthew wrote, or Matthew, excuse me, Matt, he read a portion of scripture of a man who was waiting for the coming Messiah, Simeon. And one day near the end of his life, a little child comes in, and in it the spirit wakes in his heart and says, that is the one that you've been waiting for. And with joy he says, here is the light to the Gentiles. And I would encourage you today, for that is receiving the, uh, the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit, and now as ministers of that new covenant, you and I need to be faithful in sharing the gospel. We need to handle the Word of God faithfully and correctly, and we must not lose heart, but trust God for the results. Would you join in having the same confidence that Paul had as a minister of the new covenant? Father, I pray that you would just strengthen us for these words, for in many ways that we are unfaithful. There are many ways in which we do not measure up. But Lord, let our confidence not be in ourselves, not let it be in our methodology. Let it not be in some creativity, but let it be in your word. Let us handle your word faithfully. Let us share it, not worrying about those that may reject us, but recognizing, Lord, that your work will be done guaranteed. And let us rejoice as that, as the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of the new covenant, just reaches from one heart to the other. May we rejoice as the angels rejoice when people submit to Jesus as King. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we love you so much. We pray. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.